Welcome to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. We're giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. And now, here are the doctors. John, we have a great show lineup for today. Um, very interesting information. You know, we're going to start off talking about how to make more money in your 401k. That's a good thing. That's a very good thing. <laughs> it's a very important thing, you know. And and so what we see is that the average person is overlooking some of the important steps in making the most you can out of your 401k. And it's the primary tool for most people for getting to retirement. So you need to do everything you can to beef up your 401k and get all you can out of it. And we're going to tell you how to do that. Yeah, and then we're going to follow up with the discussion on the international markets. Um, you know, the U.S. markets have, have done pretty well um, over the last year. And actually, last year was a, a fantastic year for the international markets. But there's still some really attractive valuations um, internationally. And, you know, we have these discussions with, with clients and folks out in the community about, um, you know, why invest outside the U.S.? And so we're going to look at some reasons um, why we recommend it, and folks like Dave Ramsey, you know, recommends it, and a lot of the educators out there also think international should be a really a key piece of your portfolio. You got to make sure you're diversified and and understand the risk associated with investing. Period. But um, international can be a good asset class to have in your portfolio. And we're going to discuss it. Absolutely, that's a very important topic. So that'll be a good one. By the way, I'm Steve Marbert. I'm a certified financial planner and a Dave Ramsey Smart Vester Pro with over 23 years experience providing financial planning and investment advice. And I'm John Travis, also a Dave Ramsey Smart Vester Pro. I have an MBA in finance and have been helping corporations and individuals with planning for over 25 years. We're excited to have you listen to us today on our weekly show. Our podcasts are up every Friday afternoon. Yeah, go check out our website, moneymd.net. We have the podcast out there, the historical podcast, a couple hundred now. Uh, also have a lot of videos. We've been getting a lot of good feedback from, from clients as we talk to them. They really like the uh, the feedback and some of the tools. We have some planning tools out there. We have a Facebook page. Go check that out. We put a weekly video out there as well. So we're in a lot of different uh, places out there in the, the marketplace. Absolutely. No excuse for not not checking us out and um speaking of which we'd love to hear from you by email you can email us directly at info at moneymd.net or you can uh, link to us off their website give us your questions and we'll uh answer those here on the show um so send those our way and uh but we're going to start off here with the financial fact of the week yeah see this comes from the social security trustees report from this year and um, for the last 35 years going back to 1983 the total income from um, coming into the Social Security program has exceeded the total cost or the benefits paid out. However, that streak is about to end in 2018. There's going to be more paid out than there will be put back into the coffers. Uh oh. Yeah. What does that mean? Well, that means we're going to start running a deficit. Running a deficit. And start eating into that so called uh, trust fund. That's right? right. That's right. And, you know, the projections are in 2034, uh, they're supposed to quote, run out of money, but um, there'll be some changes. They need to make some changes. Someone is going to have to make, step up and, and, and change how Social Security runs. And, and really, Social Security's uh, in better off than one of the other big programs, right? That's true. Yeah, actually, Medicare is the one that's in worse shape than Social Security. It's projected to run out of money in 2026. But, you know, I was looking this morning on the history of their projections, 
And that's nothing new. They've been projecting it's going to run out of money in 10 to 15 years for the past 35 years. Yeah. Yeah. So they keep, you know, kind of tweaking it a little bit, raising a little bit of raising the taxes a little bit, and they keep adjusting it. But seriously, it has gone from a $321 billion surplus in the trust fund, a balance in the trust fund, to only $196 billion today. So in the last 10 years, it's lost like a third of the balance mm-hmm. in the uh, trust fund. So it is eating into it, and it's projected to run out of money in 2026. So. I think that's the one that's really going to hurt the economy or hurt hurt the government, um, you know, deficits is Medicare because it's projected to escalate in costs dramatically and the deficits are projected to really escalate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, that's the one that's going to be more painful. But anyway, fun, interesting fact of yeah, the week. Sorry not to be very, such a downer. I was going to say, not very pleasant, John. You I'll get a good one next time. A little more fun for us to talk about, maybe vacations or something. (laughs) But uh, here's something good to talk about, though. How about making more money in your 401k? I like it. Um, Yeah, this is a really important topic. This is an article out of Market Watch very recently. Paul Merriman uh, wrote it, and so we're basing it off of that. But you know, most people, John, um, for most people, a 401k is their biggest source of retirement savings. Unfortunately, most people don't get the best results out of those retirement funds, and there's a lot of reasons why. In fact, we have over a dozen reasons right here why people leave hundreds of thousands of dollars on the table in their 401k, leading them to come up short for retirement, unfortunately. Um, But most importantly, here are some of the ways you can get more benefits and avoid these mistakes in your 401k. Um, by the way, this also applies to just individual retirement accounts. Um, the federal government uh, savings plan, the thrift savings plan, most IRAs. So these are very important items that you can apply across the board to your retirement plans that will help you get more out of your plan. Of course, the first one is pretty obvious here, and that is saving as early as possible during your work and life. Um, if you can manage to put $5,500 into an IRA, a Roth IRA maybe, for five years while you're in your 20s, that could mean an extra $1.5 million by the time you retire. So it's remarkable. I mean, you give yourself 40 years and, Yeah, you the know, compounding is incredible. It, it is incredible. It just depends on, you know, what rate of return it makes, but uh, it can make a huge difference. Time is your biggest asset when it comes to saving for retirement, so don't squander it. If you have a long a long retirement, um, then this could give you an extra million dollars in income over the course of that retirement, and uh, it could add $3 million to your estate. So very important. You want to get started as early as possible. Yeah, and also save more. I mean, that's an obvious one as well. But if you can increase your savings rate by 1% every year, it's going to make a huge difference in the long run. And keep doing that. We recommend 15%. You know, obviously Dave Ramsey is a 15% guy as well. Um, you know, that's our long-term recommendation to try to save a little bit extra each year, each pay period, and try to get up to that 15% level. Uh, you may be able to, to set this up so it happens automatically, so you really don't have to think about it. But, you know, um, the ideal way to accomplish it is start out at 15% if you can do that. But not everybody can start out. That's a pretty high number. But uh, Yeah, well, if you just do it gradually, <laughs> set it up automatically so mm-hmm. it increases 1% a year. Then over the course of, you know, 10 years, if you start at 5, you'd be at 15%. That's right. So and you're getting a match, yeah, most you, people. You want to set it up. You want to default. You want to set the default up for success. 
And I, I love the way that that works out if you do that automatically or can do it automatically. Also, though, take advantage of the Roth variations in your 401k and your IRAs, you know, especially in your early working years when you may not be as in a in as such a high tax bracket. You know, although it's tempting to make that tax deductible contribution every year, most of us spend our tax refunds on things that we don't even remember a few years later. So rest assured, you know, when you're retired, you will be glad you saved money in a Roth and you have tax-free income from your savings. So use the Roth option in your 401k. That's another important tip. And then whatever else you do, be sure that your contributions to your retirement plan are enough to get the full benefit of your company's matching funds. I mean, that's a no-brainer. That's, that's the free money we talk about a lot of times. Here, so after that, you know, if you have money to invest, um, what you might do, to, you know, depends on how good your company's investment options are. If they leave out some important asset classes, then you can put more money into an IRA in order to fill out your investment diversification. Um, the most important asset class to have is uh, that's missing from a lot of retirement plans is small value, which has returned over 15% per year for the last 80 years. So. You want to make sure you have that asset class in there. So, you know, take advantage of the extra money you can put in to fill out those asset classes. And then next here, if your spouse, if you have a spouse with a 401k, you might be able to get better options with the other plan uh, than you can with your own in terms of better, better investment options. In this case, um, you can kind of look at the total of both accounts as one and you can concentrate some asset classes in your plan and some asset classes in your spouse's plan. For instance, if you have good um, index funds in your plan, you might put the index funds for small caps in yours and the index funds for large caps in hers or vice versa. You know, So just look at the two, see if you can get it diversified between eight to 12 different asset classes represented in the two <coughs> plans. That's what we consider great diversification. Yeah, another uh, you know tip here, Steve, is is don't be too conservative, especially when you're young. If you're in your 20s, 30s, or even early 40s, I mean, being 100% in the market probably is a reasonable stance for you. You, know, you have to make sure you're comfortable and understand the the market volatility a little bit. But um, you know, even in your 50s, you could be 80% in the in the market. Um, at some point, though, within about three years of retirement, looking to pull that back to maybe 60%. But we do see a lot of people that are really conservative, even some folks that are still in cash, you know, dating all the way back to 2008. They've missed the run-up. So that being conservative can really hurt your 401k performance. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, along those lines, we've talked about this before, but every additional 10% of your portfolio that you can put in equities, that means about a half to 1% additional return each year. That's a very big deal, you know, um, because that likely translates into hundreds of thousands of dollars over the course of 30 years. So you want to make sure that you're as aggressive as is appropriate for your situation so that you capture all the return possible. Don't just default to the automatic investment that's in there, you know, which tends to be more conservative. You know, even target date funds tend to be a little too conservative, in my opinion, John, so mm -hmm. I mean, you want to make sure that you're 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 in the appropriate level of aggressiveness in your portfolio in terms of exposure to equities, um, and then boost your returns by investing in value funds. You know, large cap value funds over periods of more than than uh, 
you know, 10 years have produced an extra 1% per year compared to the S&P 500. Um, and in the case of small value funds, as we just mentioned, the advantage compared to the S&P 500 is 4 to 5% per year. So that is huge. So make sure your portfolio is weighted toward value both in the U.S., and internationally in your retirement plan. Yeah, another thing you can look at doing is um, to smooth out some of the volatility is is be diversified. We talk about this a lot. Um, REITs is an option we see sometimes in, in 401ks, but you should also consider adding you know, some emerging markets. Make sure you have international large cap funds and, and value funds and small cap funds that they offer them. We do see some plans locally that don't have a real good selection. Um, and other times it's actually overwhelming. They'll have 60 or 70 mutual funds and you have no clue what to get. Yeah, that it's makes like it very complicated. analysis paralysis. So, um, you know, make sure that you're diversified, though, um, have more than just the S&P 500. It's a good asset class to have, but um, try to own some different asset classes. Yeah, also try to focus your investments on the low-cost index type funds in your plans instead of actively managed mutual funds. You know, studies show that historically over 15-year periods, index funds usually outperform 90% of all actively managed funds in any given asset class. And then pure asset class funds, um, which don't try to pick stocks at all, are even better since they buy the entire asset class and not just an index. And that's kind of what we focus our portfolios on. But uh, at least make sure you're not using an actively managed fund that has a lot of turnover that's just picking, you know, 50 stocks or 100 stocks. You want to use an index fund so you get as broad diversification as possible. And when it comes to bond funds, choose those that invest in short and intermediate term bonds, which are high quality, and especially choose funds with low expenses. You know, bonds are supposed to be the safe part of your portfolio, which will be there no matter what the market is doing. So make sure that you're not taking unnecessary risk in the bond portion of your portfolio. I mean, such would be the case if you're using a long-term bond fund um, due to the added interest rate risk that we currently have with interest rates going up. So you don't want to do that. You want to keep your bonds high quality and short-term in duration. And be careful about using alternative asset classes that don't have a long history of equaling the S&P 500. You know, this includes gold future funds or gold funds, commodity funds, Bitcoin, you know, among other things. You know, there's just a lot of alternative things that sound maybe sexy. They sound like something new that you should be using, you know, commodities or something. But uh, you don't want to do that in your retirement plan. Um, you know, you and your future deserve better than that, so don't speculate on unproven asset classes or inferior returning investments. Those have been proven historically to not give you as high a return. Yeah, another mistake we see, Steve, which impacts the balance of 401ks is when someone borrows money from the 401k. I mean, you should not pull any money out of a 401k unless it's an emergency. Foreclosure on your house would be an emergency, but um, the, the list is very, very short. The real cost of doing so is extremely high. I know people say, well, I'm paying myself back, you know, 4% or 5%. You're paying back after-tax dollars, and you're not getting generally a market rate of return. So it's going to cost you. It generally is never a good move to pull money out of your 401k. You need to leave it in there, leave it alone, let it do its thing over time, and um, it's going to hurt you if you do. That's right. <clears throat> yeah. And if you need to, keep working an extra two to five years before you retire to, to make your plan, 
get to the size that it needs to be to support your income, you know, this can effectively double your retirement income. And so why does it do that? Well, for one thing, you'll have fewer years that your portfolio will have to pay you in retirement. Um, but for another thing, you will save a lot more money that will benefit you from compounding effects of returns that will add money and add income when you do retire. So, you know, adding an extra year or two, don't, don't underestimate the power of that. That can add a lot of additional income and really kind of bridge the gap. Um, and it will get you closer to, to Social Security. Your Social Security goes up as well. So um, that's a powerful tool. And if all the diversification that we recommend is more than you're comfortable or willing to do, or if you just can't uh, do that in your retirement plan, then choose a good target date retirement fund. You know, there's nothing wrong with using a target date fund in your plan and keeping it simple. Um, while you can sometimes build a better portfolio on your own in your plan, it can be much easier to simply choose a target date fund that builds the portfolio for you inside one fund. It's kind of a fund of funds. It, it um, will closely correspond to the year that you retire. So you'll pick the fund that has the, the year that you're planning to retire on there. And if you do that, you might also want to put some of your money outside outside your IRA into a small value fund in order to boost your long-term returns without taking too much additional risk. So if you do even one or two of these things, you're likely to be more successful in retirement, more successful investment. You'll, you'll probably have thousands of dollars ahead of what you do on your current course when you do retire. Um, and if you do the majority of these things, your retirement will be much more profitable and pleasant for you. So get started today with some of these items to improve your retirement picture going forward. Okay, and that leads us up here to our question of the week. Yeah, this question has to do with um, student loans. And uh, this uh, young man just graduated with about $45,000 worth of debt. And um, just talked to him recently about steps to get out of debt quickly. And it's a big number. Um, he does have a full-time job, sure. um, you know, making between 35 and 40. So it's going to take him a while to get out. So I really encouraged him to, um, to get a second job. <clears throat> okay. Right. He's young and sure. he has some, some really good skills and talents. And if he can go out and do some freelance work and, um, you know, if he could do $1,600 a month, which is a big number in two and a half years, he would be completely out of debt at the age of 27. So a second, second part-time job is going to be very important. Yeah, it would. It would. You know, another idea that, you know, Dave Ramsey says is to, to just continue, just live like a grad student. You know, I mean, don't fall into the trap of, oh, I got a new job. Now I got to have a new car and I got to have a got to go buy a house and do all these things to act like an adult. Um, you know, if you want to hammer these student loan debts, just keep living like a grad student for maybe another four or five years. You know, live in an apartment, share an apartment with somebody. Um, just drive your old car and just, you know, just be cheap and just save about half of your income and just slam it toward those debts. And just, you know, have a focus like a gazelle, right? Yeah, and gazelle intense. Gazelle intense and pay off those <laughs> debts. So, uh, yeah, there's lots of ways to focus on that and uh, 
That's the way I would suggest doing it. So that's a good one. All right, and that leads us up to our next topic here, and that is international investing. Why should you be focused on internationals, John? Yeah, I mean, some of the valuations are certainly attractive, and uh, it's tough to ignore. I mean, U.S. stocks have, have definitely outpaced international equities over you know, the last uh, several years um, by wide margin. And, um, you know, last year was a great year for the international markets, but uh, this year has been, been a little down. And, you know, that's the, the, the bad news. The good news is, is this relative underperformance offers value-oriented investors a really a good place to bargain hut when a time when the U.S. equities and many other asset classes are fairly expensive when you look at a lot of the, the measures that are out there. So, uh, international has underperformed, but you know if you look back at history, it typically has been a great time to buy. Yeah, that's true. I mean, international equities also remain attractive due to several factors, including kind of the valuation gap um, between uh, different different countries. You know, Europe and Japan, for instance. On average, the PE ratio, the price to earnings ratio of developed markets. Um, non-U.S. stocks is 14.3 compared to 16.6 for U.S. stocks as of very recently. So, you know, that's a big difference, and that can mean the international stocks have a lot more room to run, um, a lot more attractive valuation, and, um, you know, whenever they, they do take off, they have they have better potential. Yeah, this um, this is an article from Capital uh, Ideas, American Funds. And, you know, they're, they're asking the question, you know, can international equities do well without the U.S. leading the way? And this one uh, portfolio manager, Lisa Thompson, says, yeah, uh, she thinks they can. She's studied the markets over time. But, you know, one of the reasons why she says that as you look at a lot of the uh, – the companies that are trading out there and the PE ratio, like you mentioned, Steve, is um, is very, very low. And, and the banks, for example, um, J.P. Morgan Chase is at 11 uh, PE ratio, and there is something called Unicredit in Europe that is at 8 PE. And they go through a lot of different examples here, but bottom line is the international markets um, are cheaper than the U.S. markets, and emerging markets are even cheaper than that. Um, so if you look at the, um, the valuation story in the European banking, banking sector, uh, many Euro, Euro, Eurozone banks have struggled in recent years. They have a lot of strict regulations. The uh, economic growth has been sluggish. Um, there's been really low interest rates as well. And they've severely crimped the profitability of the lending industry. Um, but as the European economy has recovered from the recessionary and debt crisis back in 2011, many commercial and investment banks um, they're they're poised to enjoy the fruits of improved business activity. So we see banking as a as a possibility. Yeah, another factor is higher interest rates may be on the horizon. You know, I mean, we're already seeing that, of course, here in the U.S. But the European Central Bank announced on June 14th that it's going to begin winding down its massive bond buying stimulus program, which effectively suppressed interest rates in the eurozone in an attempt to kind of jumpstart the economy. And, you know, interest rate hikes are likely going to follow in the mid to late 2019. Um, but, you know, that's a while down the road. And meanwhile, we're already rising, raising interest rates, which tend to depress stocks going forward. So the effects of rising interest rates are going to affect us here before they affect the European stocks. So that leaves the European stocks in a healthy position mm-hmm. to advance 
before that really, you know, takes effect. Yeah, another sector in Europe that we see is, uh, you know, uh, attractively priced is in the um, the airplane manufacturers. Boeing in the U.S. is at a 22 price-to-earnings ratio versus 19 for Airbus. Um, you know, the, the comparison's interesting because of its um, global duopoly, and um, they have slightly different phases in their cycle. Boeing has come into a cash generation phase, and Airbus is not too far behind, but they're they're priced differently, and they're in some very similar markets. Yeah, that's true. And European markets um, are even a, a a a bigger example of the valuation differences. The the world's two largest smartphone makers, Apple and Samsung, for instance, have a vastly different valuations. There's a fourteen point eight PE ratio for Apple versus six point nine for Samsung. So Samsung is effectively like 40% of the price of Apple. Um, so there's a huge difference, you know, and of course there's a huge difference in their product line, their businesses, but, you know, there's a lot of potential gains for Samsung that are obviously greater than Apple if they can compete, you know, down the road. So there's some potential there. Yeah, there's also an economic tailwind. Uh, for a time last year, it looked like the economic growth trends in Europe and Japan had taken a dramatic turn for the better. Um, those trends, coupled with a f- uh, market-friendly election in both France and Germany, really fueled an equity and currency market rally. It's since faded a little bit, but the fact remains that Europe and Japan have both emerged from really long-term economic doldrums and and are now you know on stronger footing. Matter of fact, in the first quarter of 2018, uh, the 19-member eurozone grew at about 2.5%. Um, and uh, and that's roughly on par with the U.S., 2.8% as well. Japan, meanwhile, enjoyed a two-year growth streak until the first quarter when the, the economy contracted a little bit. So there's some positive economic things going on. There's still some political questions um, that we're seeing out there as well. Yeah, and there's some questions about the uh, economic tailwinds out there. You know, there's a, a very strong uh, uh, 2017 uh, in the economy for the eurozone, the data has softened a little bit. They're saying, you know, we're now in a eurozone where the growth is probably going to normalize around one and a half to two percent or so, um, which is, you know, close to a sustainable long-term rate. But mm-hmm. we'll see. Yeah, and there's obviously political issues going on over there. The the euro has um has been bouncing around this year's down this year, but the pl- political scene in Europe and Japan. Um, has also stabilized. Germans Chancellor uh, Angela Merkel and the Japanese Prime Minister, um, they both won re-election. France business-friendly reform candidate Macron rose to the you know president's, um, and he, he was elected. And uh, that helped fuel last year's you know stock market rally. Um, it was a little bit short-lived. You have some turmoil in Italy and Spain as well um, this year. So that seems like to be a kind of a common theme over time, but it's it's always been like that. That's right. And these politics have depressed international stocks a little bit. So when those clear up, you know, clearly there's some potential for gains. But the euro tumbled against the dollar in May after the Italian president um, blocked the formation of a coalition government that included leaders from the two parties with kind of euro skeptic views. Um, And they raised investor fears that Italy may be considering leaving the the EU um, in the Eurozone, um, like Britain did. Um, but, you know, Italian stocks had declined 9% in terms of local currency, and, 
you know, so the question is, you know, what's it going to do going forward? But that has depressed their stocks in the past, which means they have more potential for the future. Yeah. So the question is, is how long will international outperform the U.S.? And obviously no one knows that. Um, the relative underperformance of international equities from an investor psychology perspective may leave investors feeling like, you know, it's, it's always going to be this way. And in reality, the story is quite uh, opposite and, and it really is cyclical. When you look back at, um, we have a chart that we're kind of looking at here, and throughout recent history, there have been significant amounts of time when the U.S. stocks were laggards. If you look back in the um, early part of the the decade, back in 2000 to 2009, I mean, the U.S. stocks basically made zero. Large stocks made zero, and uh, international stocks did fairly well. So how long this current cycle will continue really is anybody's guess. No one knows, but given the length of this period as well as the glaring valuation gap, Investors concerned about maintaining a balanced, diversified portfolio would probably do well to consider, you know, having international stocks and maybe even increasing it, Um, you know, doing some rebalancing like we've talked about in the past, Steve, um, when something is down historically. It's been a reasonable opportunity to go buy something when it's cheap. So buy low, sell high. And and international stocks are, are valued at a low rate compared to some other asset classes. Yeah, and most experts, you know, would tell you that you, you in, in your portfolio, you need to have probably, you know, 25 to 35% in internationals of your equities. You know, the part that you have in equities, you know, roughly at least a third of that needs to be in internationals. That's kind of the rule of thumb. So, and there are certainly schools of thought for having more than that. Um, but uh, you want to be diversified worldwide, and there's a lot of potential there for that to pick up whenever mm. the U.S. does slack off. Well, half of their uh, DFA has a really cool chart. I was just talking to Matthew on it. Um, half the world's value is outside the U.S., right? Exactly. I mean, it's split half in the U.S. and half outside. So it definitely bodes, um, you know, to have a decent amount in international uh, equities. For sure. Okay, good topic. And that leads us up to our final thing, and that is the prescription of the week. Yeah, we all know that individual stocks can be risky. We saw that this last week. Amazon bought a company called PillPack. And in mm-hmm. um, that one day, the uh, pharmaceutical stocks, uh, and it really it's the Walgreens of the world, the CVSs, they lost about $17 billion in one one day. So. As that famous beer commercial says, stay diversified, my friends. Yeah, <laughs> no, no doubt. Yeah, anything can happen with individual stocks. And, uh, you know, even a great company like Westinghouse went bankrupt here, mm-hmm. what was it, last year? And, you know, Delta's gone bankrupt a couple times, I think. And yeah. you're still flying jets. But if you own those, you know, and that was where your primary savings vehicle was, then, you know, you got pretty much nothing out of the stock. We've talked about GE before. I mean, Scanna's struggling. I mean, it's you can't bank everything on one stock. Stocks are risky individually. Exactly. That's why you need to diversify. So great prescription of the week. All right, and that brings us to a close for this week's edition of Money MD. Tune in next week to hear more prescriptions for your financial health. Do check us out on our website, moneymd.net, and email us your questions. You can email us at info at moneymd.net or give us a call at Richard Young Associates, 706-739-0725. Thanks for listening. Have a great rest of the week. Have a good one. This program contains general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. This broadcast is not a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. Smart Mr. Pro is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor. About a certain-